Welcome to this edition of the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Podcast. My name is Dylan Wiseman. I'm a shareholder at Buckhalter in San Francisco and Sacramento, and I'm the co-chair of the uh, Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Practice Group. Uh, today, I'm joined by uh, Josh Robbins and Julian Mack, who will introduce themselves here momentarily. And we're here to talk about the new California Supreme Court case of Siri Investment LP versus Farcondapur. So with that, let me have uh, Josh and Pete introduce themselves. Thanks, Dylan. Um, good to be, this is Josh, good to be back here. Again, I think this is my second time on the podcast. And as you're, I'm Josh Robbins, I co-chair the uh, firm's white collar and government enforcement practice, which has a bit of uh, relevance and overlap with uh, today's topic. Hi, uh, I'm Pete Mack. I'm a member of the Employee Mobility and Trade Secrets practice, and I practice out of our San Francisco office. Great. Welcome to you both. Uh, you guys are both uh, been on the podcast a couple of times before, and it's always great to have people come back. Uh, we're going to have a quick breakdown of the Siri investment versus for Condapore case. Uh, let me provide a little bit of background and context. Uh, this case came out in July, end of July of this year from the unanimous California Supreme Court, which concluded that Penal Code 496C, which previously had been uh, enacted largely to address uh, the theft of stolen property and trafficking in stolen property, and has been slowly expanded over time. But to say that uh, Penal Code 496C applies in certain instances, instances uh, in the commercial context in a dispute with uh, involving a limited partnership in Los Angeles, uh, which was formed to lease and uh, improve the commercial real estate down there. And so the limited partners ended up in a dispute. Uh, what had happened was is that one of the limited partners with his colleague decided that they were going to divert some of the rents and divert other funds from their uh, limited partners, and which resulted in litigation, which went on and on and on and on, and ultimately made its way to the uh, California Supreme Court uh, after the defendants had lost on a default. And so what happened there was the, the plaintiff proved that it was entitled to its actual damages, and the court awarded uh, attorney's fees of about $4 million, uh, punitive damages of $4 million, treble damages of about $3 million. Uh, and so the, the total amount that was awarded to the, uh, to the plaintiffs was about $12 million. And uh, so the case then came before the California Supreme Court to determine whether or not Penal Code 496 uh, properly provides uh, treble damages and attorney's fees in this context of a dispute between limited partners who had alleged uh, fraud and various types of theft. And with that, so we'll turn it over to Pete to explain to us the rationale of the court. Okay, uh, well, what the Supreme Court did was they really took a very strict reading of the language of the statutes and, and basically went with that. Uh, as Dylan said, that 
Penal Code 496A says that every person who buys or receives any property that has been stolen or that has been obtained in any manner constituting theft or extortion, knowing the property be, to be so stolen or obtained, or who conceals, sells, withholds, or aids in concealing, selling, or withholding that property, knowing it to be stolen or obtained, is subject to a jail sentence. That's 496A. And then 496C says that anyone who has been injured by a violation of 496A may bring an action for three times the amount of actual damages, cost of suit, and reasonable attorney's fees. And that's how they racked up all those damages. Um, <clears throat> the Siri court really relied on two previous Court of Appeal cases. The first one was called Bell v. Feibush, which is a 2013 case. Uh, in Bell, the defendant had induced the plaintiff to loan him over $200,000 based on false pretenses that the, that the defendant owned a specific trademark. And uh, when the uh, plaintiff asked for his money back, he got a bunch of it and eventually was never paid and brought suit. Um, what Bell did was it did hew pretty strictly to the to the statute and it, and it linked 496 to another provision of the penal code, penal code 484. Bell said that 496 says uh, that uh, it applies to any man, to uh, any property that has been stolen or has been obtained in any manner constituting theft or extortion. It then went on to look at Penal Code 484. Uh, 484, the first sentence of 484 states that every person who shall feloniously steal, take, carry, lead, or drive away the personal property of another or fraudulently appropriate property that has been entrusted to him or this is the part that, that the uh, Bell case relied on, or who shall knowingly and designedly by any false or fraudulent representation or pretense defraud any other person of money, labor, or real or personal property is guilty of theft. So Bell took that language and construed it to mean that, says that 484 and therefore 496A define theft to include theft by false pretense, i.e. fraud, and that the statute applied in that case. Um, the next case that was relied upon by the Supreme Court in, in um, theory was a 2019 case in the appellate court uh, called Switzer v. Wood. And in Switzer, the court found 496C of the penal code applicable in a situation that was pretty similar to Siri. It was an income sharing dispute between joint venture and limited liability business partners. Um, the plaintiff sued alleging, among other things, breach of contract, fraud, and breach of fiduciary duty concerning the distribution of funds uh, equity income funds from the limited liability business. This is a pretty standard business tort kind of complaint. 
the trial court declined to apply 496C, saying that the legislature could not have intended to apply treble damages to wrongful conduct in the context of a joint venture or pre-existing business relationship where ordinary fraud or breach of contract remedies would be available. Uh, the Court of Appeal reversed. They found that the language of 496A is clear and un unambiguous, that all one needs to show to show a violation of 496 are simply that the property was stolen or obtained in a manner constituting theft, that the defendant knew the manner was the property was so stolen or obtained, and that the defendant received or had possession of the property. Uh, they did note that, you know, they, they noted as had Bell the potential uh, policy issues of so greatly expanding these remedies, but said that if that is the case, we're not going to rewrite the legislation and that it's the task of the legislature to address those policy type concerns. So then we get to Siri, which is the California Supreme Court, and it relied heavily on both uh, on both Bell and on uh, and on Switzer. Uh, and while they acknowledge that the policy considerations give give pause, they agreed that Section four ninety six C is unambiguous, uh, and that when read together with 496A and Penal Code 484 uh, can recover treble damages and attorney's fees when property has been obtained in any manner constituting theft. And they use the definition from Bell of any manner constituting theft as including theft by, uh, by fraud. Uh, and therefore, just on a straight statutory interpretation, applied it to the facts of their case and found that uh, 496C damages were appropriate. So Josh, what do you think of this kind of textualist approach and the concerns about, uh, about expanding the statute in, in a way that maybe or maybe not the legislature contemplated? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the, the big picture, you know, meta interpretive approach that the Supreme Court took here was that we, whether or not this is broader than the legislature probably intended, and some people might think it's a really uh, aggressive or radical expansion of how this law applies, we're not going to second guess that. We're not going to, you know, read legislative intent beyond what's in the text, and we're not going to say we, you know, we're, that it's too absurd a result for us to take this position that this is this is how it should be read. Um, we're gonna the whole concept that you can't read a statute to, in an absurd way. We're gonna save that for really extreme cases, and we don't think this is one of them. So we're gonna take the text wherever it leads, and it does lead in a pretty significant uh, direction here in really expanding what people can do with this statute now. Uh, I mean, for years since 19, since the, this version of the law was passed in 1972, um, creative plaintiffs' lawyers and business litigators 
have been trying to use it to take advantage of these the treble damages and attorney fees remedies in the statute to make it this kind of nuclear option in in business litigation. Um, and courts have really pushed back on it a lot over the years until you got to, to Bell and Switzer that, that Pete discussed um, when they, they gave broader room for it to be used in kind of more common commercial disputes uh, where there are fraud claims. And now the Supreme Court has basically given its blessing to that and said, yep, uh, we're gonna read this as being essentially anytime there's a fraud claim, a uh, common law fraud claim, you can plead that in a way to convert it um, so that this statute applies and you can you can try to seek treble damages and attorney fees, which was not the case in a regular fraud uh, case before. And people bring up fraud claims in all types of cases, um, like the one, you know, part, just a partnership dispute. You could imagine uh, a consumer um, fraud dispute, you know, uh, even a class action based on that. Um, you have the, uh, you know, loan fraud case that I think was at issue in Bell, all kinds of places. Anytime there is a fraud claim, now this is really amping up the potential damages and incentivizing people to try to put it into this. And that you see a, an analog to this, a parallel to this in federal practice, where for years um, people have taken advantage of the RICO statute, which allows for civil claims um, based on violations of the, the racketeering statute, which is also a criminal law, like penal code for uh, penal code um, at issue here, 496. And it allows for trouble damages and attorney fees. So people have tried to, you know, take business disputes of all kinds and plead them in a way to make them a RICO case. And the federal courts have really pushed back on that and, and often tend to dismiss those claims. But now if you have something linked to California, um, this is really, you know, provides maybe even a better option for plaintiffs than RICO because you get the, the damages benefits, um, but it's much easier to plead and you can keep it in state court where there are a lot of advantages for plaintiffs for various reasons. So I think you're going you're gonna to see a, a big increase in litigants in any kind of case where they can make out a fraud claim, um, trying to make use of this to amp up their damages and increase their leverage. Um, and that's, that's, that's going to become, uh, you know, I think the effects of that over time are going to be every bit as, as significant as what the, um, the, uh, the critics uh, opposing this um, have warned about. I think that's a fair assessment. I think that we're going to see a lot more cases that are aggressively pled to try to invoke this provision, uh, whether or not it the Supreme Court contemplated this outcome. I think that that's going to be uh, interesting to see how this plays out in the next few years uh, in California state courts about how far will courts allow this to go and how far will uh, plaintiff's lawyers want to take it. So uh, from my vantage, I was really intrigued by the issue of whether or not uh, Siri and versus Farcondapur applies in the trade secrets context. And given this a fair amount of thought, I don't see that it does. Um, the, uh, the, the Siri doesn't mention trade secrets at all, which I think is important all by itself. The uh, California Trades Uniform Trade Secrets Act has a preemption provision in it that says it completely occupies the field where trade secrets are concerned so that uh, it provides the only remedy that's available in that context. Um, 
and that there is a separate um, criminal provision for trade secrets is under Penal Code 499, which also is, doesn't come to play in this Siri case. So um, the as I see it, the big issues can become where you have a case in the commercial context where there's a potential for fraud and you've got information that doesn't rise to the level of a trade secret, but maybe it's confidential or this certainly the company's property. Uh, and it's misused. Does uh, does this new case open the door for trouble damages and potentially attorney's fees in that context? And I guess the issue is we're going to have to wait and see and see how that unfolds. Uh, but uh, it's certainly a, uh, a considerable development coming from a unanimous California Supreme Court. And I want to thank you both for taking your time to add your insights and your comments. And uh, if you're interested in anything regarding the trade secrets field, please check out our other podcasts here on the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Podcast. Thanks again, you guys. I definitely appreciate it. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah.